0: Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Pat Pickens. He is formerly a writer for NHL.com. Previously, he was an editorial producer for MLB Advanced Media and a freelance sports writer covering the NHL for the New York Times, Rogers Sportsnet, the Associated Press, and other outlets. His new book is The Whalers, The Rise, Fall, and Enduring Mystique of New England's Second Greatest NHL Franchise, which is published by our friends at Lions Press. Pat, welcome to the program.
1: Hey, Jason. How are you today?
0: I'm doing well. Thanks, Pat. And it's an honor to have you here. And uh, first things first, Pat, since we may have Hartford Whalers fans listening to this, um, I came to this book as a Carolina Hurricanes fan. I saw this book in the team shop at PNC Arena while the Canes were playing the Rangers. And I thought, Why on earth do we not have this in our bookstore? We have tons of Canes fans who shop here. We have it now. We've sold out of it twice. I know our friends at Page 158 books are carrying it now too, and I'm assuming that they saw it in the arena as well. Uh, So I'm coming to this as a Canes fan, but I'm also a lifelong Charlotte Hornets fan who has either been attending single games or multiple games as a season ticket holder since the team's inception in 1988. And when the Hornets left Charlotte for New Orleans, it broke my heart. And there's a whole story behind that move and the Hornets return. But I wanted to preface this interview with the information that, yes, I am a Canes fan, uh, as Quail Ridge Books is in Raleigh. But I also identify with the heartache of losing a team. So Pat, first, this book is fantastic. Thank you for writing it. Why, Pat, did you choose to write a book about the whalers and how long did you work on it? So
1: I'm glad you prefaced that. That's good to know because, because uh, I, the Hornets, obviously we could get into that later if you want to, but it's, it's, they, were, they were a unique situation there too. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me 10 years to, to answer the second question first um you know it took me 10 years from start to finish it was a project that uh i was in connecticut i went to college in connecticut i um uh, and obviously you know i think um you know i think the hurricanes actually turned me on to the story because uh obviously i'm a big hockey fan grew up a hockey fan grew up a, a new jersey devils fan in um in, in new jersey uh, as a kid and and even into adulthood. And they played some pretty epic series with the hurricanes playoff series, 2001, 2002, 2006, and then 09, which is not covered in the book. But the other, the the other, um, three are are touched on. There's a whole chapter about the hurricanes, which I I Mm -hmm. felt I couldn't tell the story about the whalers without sort of getting into why, how interesting it is, how the hurricanes took where Hartford was and ran with it. And then, um, you know, became champions, you know, Stanley Cup championship, in six and the run into the cup final in 02, which I think is interesting to the people of the people in North Carolina. But, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was in Connecticut, So the 06 cup final, I followed very closely because I was, and I'm sort of fascinated by that series because it was seven games. And, and I, I just remember the, the hurricanes beating the devils and the hurricanes were so powerful that year. And then, um, you know, that series with Edmonton in 06 was just so, remo- so spectacular coming out of the NHL lockout, no five, where there was no, hockey, where there was no professional NHL hockey. Mm-hmm. And then he you had know, the seven game series that, that it gets forgotten. I think it gets lost a little bit in the, ter- in terms of the history of, of the NHL because, you know, Carolina is a non-traditional market and Edmonton is, is most people couldn't put place it on a map in even in North America. And, um, and it was the TV, break. but anyway, I love it. Cause you know, and, and well, the memories of it um, are obviously of game seven where the fans in Carolina, you know, were insane and, and awesome and stood the whole game and, and, and made crazy noise. And, and that, that's the, the lasting memory of a lot of people from that year. So mm-hmm. that sort of uh, started the, my curiosity as, as someone who's following that series, mm-hmm. specifically in terms of how, the people of Hartford because I was in Connecticut at the time I was going to college and, and working in the summer between my junior and senior year of college and sort of very much aware of Connecticut and also that Carolina was winning the Stanley cup. So I, you know, that, that sort of informed some things. So I got to Connecticut as a sports writer uh, writing for Hearst in Connecticut, a little paper called the Fairfield citizen. I was a sports editor um, out of college and, and I started, you know, I started in February of 2008. And uh, among my first uh, games and beats was to cover high school hockey across the state, you know, state playoffs and high school hockey. And the people of Connecticut really loved hockey, um, whether they had their support for the Whalers or not, or, or in team in Harper, we can get to in a little bit. But, um, but there, was, there was still, there were, you know, Teenagers, I would say, you know, I, I don't want to call them kids because I don't want to age myself, but there were, you know, ju- you know, sophomores, juniors, freshmen sophomores, juniors, seniors in high school who were wearing, you know, sort of whalers' hats and whalers' jerseys and whalers merchandise and memorabilia. And, and um, you know, I would come out or I would interview a player and he would have a whaler's hoodie on, or or there'd be people walking the streets. Um, you know, before state playoff games, before state final games, they'd have the, you know, a Whalers hat or a Whalers jersey or, or some sort of commemoration of, of the Hartford uh, hockey team. Or I'd go to the mall um, on my days off and I'd see huge, uh, huge sort of uh, displays of, of Whalers merchandise. And it was very prominent. And I was sort of curious, like what is happening? Like, what is the story behind all this? Cause you, um, you know, at, at that point, you know the the, the 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 high school kids were were fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. You know, rough age of high school students, and they were they had been sort of you know, it was it was like they're like three, four, and five when the team left at that point, mm-hmm. which you know is not real. There's not really many foundational memories built in those days as someone who was a parent of a of people of that age, you know, they're sort of just, they're they're sort of acutely aware of what's going on in general, let alone to have memory of the whalers. So they, they, there's obviously some kinship to the team and the nostalgia piece. um, And the the logo is great. And, and whatnot. but um, so I started again, started with the hurricanes, went to the, the whalers and, and and came to that and sort of, uh, you know, a friend of mine challenged me, you know, we sort of challenged each other to write books mm. and I, you know, I didn't even know where to get started. So I, I sat on the idea for, for about three years. And at some point, um, you know, I, I just sort of, I was getting disgruntled because I was, we we're coming out of the, the recession as a sports writer and there weren't a lot of jobs
0: mm. and I didn't
1: want to cover high school sports for my whole career. I knew that. And, uh, you know, I had this idea for the book and again, really just didn't know where to get started. And then sort of got challenged again to, to just start. And I was like, but, but how, you know, making all these excuses in my head. Well, how do I start? What do I do? Where do I even begin? And so, you know, my sister-in-law who is now sister-in-law, she just said, why don't you just start? And I was like, and it hit me like a, like a ton of bricks. Like, oh, okay, I'll just start. It was 2011. And I did my first interview in November of 2011 and, and next interview was, you know, later that year. And then uh, there were other interviews that came up through the, through the years. And it was something that I sort of, I mean, I couldn't dedicate my whole life to because I had, I had to have a job and I had to have a career. I had a career path that I was trying to, 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 and at that point, you know, honestly, if the story had been published 10 years ago, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as good as it, it became because there's so much was left to be unveiled. And, um, but it was something Mm -hmm. that I started and then I sort of picked it up and put it down and, and I'm grateful that so many former players and former, uh, fans and current players and current fans and, and, you know, hockey establishment media, they let me in to tell stories about what happened up there and what, what went down in their minds and, and I just, I, uh, you know, because when I started this project, and I mean, I, I, I always joke, I'm, I'm still nobody, you know, nobody knows, most people don't know who I am. I'm not any any sort of uh, household name, either in Connecticut or in Raleigh. So most people don't, you know, most certainly when I started, I was nowhere close to, to in terms of the story or in terms of, you know, my name recognition, people didn't know me at all. And yet they were all willing to talk to me because I started with this blank canvas. Like I said, I was sort of acutely aware of the whalers' existence. I was 11 when they left. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't even like I was this, this diehard whaler fan who was heartbroken by it. I just sort of became the, 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 the vehicle by which the story was told. And I'm, I'm, I'm ecstatic about the re- reaction to it because um, I just wanted to tell the story right. And I, I was so paranoid about not telling it right because again I didn't live the story I wanted to make sure that the people who lived it either learned something or were entertained or or just you know got some um some memories and some nostalgia from from my story and, and the reaction's been incredible and i'm I'm, I'm so grateful for it
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Pat. And um, I'm glad you brought up all of the uh, interviews that you did, because it seems uh, to me as a reader that you had access to probably almost everyone that you wanted to have access to. And I'm noticing a trend in um, hockey, let's say documentaries and books and such, that people in this sport just seem to make themselves accessible maybe in a way that um you wouldn't be able to reach say michael jordan or you know yeah. um, what have mm-hmm. you uh, tom brady etc um do yeah. you think um that these folks made themselves accessible to you is this something um that's inherent to hockey are these players just more accessible and friendly than players of other sports
1: i i think there is uh, you know i think i've said all along that I feel very fortunate that the people who live this story made the time again to, to, to tell the story, to let me tell the story because, you know, Mm -hmm. Brendan Shanahan is, is one of the greatest players in hockey history. And and he gave me an hour. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and not just that, you know, I I always tell the story or I don't get to tell the story as often as I'd like to, but I I love the story. It was that, um, Brendan Shanahan called me, um, 2018, I guess it was. And I was home with my, my then one-year-old daughter, and um, and you know, so I'm talking. I have this huge interview. I'm super excited. I'm super, you know, <laughs> inspired, and I'm nervous because my. So I put my daughter in front of the TV, and I get on the, you know, get my recorder all set up. Got my my phone in the perfect spot in our house to to record the interview to make sure you know the service is right. And my daughter comes <laughs> comes wandering into the, the our our room, mm-hmm. and interrupts the whole thing. And I have to say, Brandon, hold on, a, wait a second. My daughter, she. She just came in here. I got to go take care of her and put her back in front of the TV. And he, he was very genuine and very, you know, he's talking about, well, I, I guess my kids are older. We don't have that problem anymore, but mm-hmm. um, I've been saying this, you know, and I, I, hockey's got a lot of problems, you know, in terms of diversity, in terms of the, the way there's treatment, the way there's a, you know, a ceiling for a lot of people and, and certainly people are, you know, it's, it's, it is not, I would say it's not an inclusive sport or it's trying to be an inclusive sport, but it's, it's, it's not really succeeding. But um, fortunately, my experience has been a lot different from a lot of people's in that. Yes, there is a lot of time for, for people to make, you know, um, I, the whalers uh, or the, the city of Hartford, they have it, this annual whalers weekend where they bring back alumni and uh, for the Double A team, has has a weekend series every year, and, and Whalers alumni come back and they they tell stories and they they share anecdotes and they take pictures and autographs and stuff like that, and and everyone just and 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 I you know went to it a couple times, and and I could walk up to some of these guys and say, hey, look, I'm writing a book about the Whalers, can you give me some time, and I think I think the access I got is a function of the story too, because the people who lived the story just love their time in Connecticut. They just can't, you know, they, they, they would tell these stories to anybody, uh, but especially me who's writing a book who wants to chronicle this stuff. So I, I feel fortunate in that regard, but I agree, you know, I, I've often said that um, there is a place for people in hockey, whoever, if they want, if they really want to be there. There's, there's a spot for, for most people I'd say in hockey, if they're really, you know, want to be there now, now, again, it's not, it's not going to be, you know, not everyone's going to be able to, to get to the, the highest point or the, the greatest level or, or whatnot. There, again, there are some, some doors and some uh, ceilings and, and it is frustrating, I would say, for, for a lot of people who love the sport and want to see it grow to watch, you know, the league has been a little bit um, detrimental, I would say, in some regard but um but yeah i think you know there is something to that in terms of the the access and the and the you know the perception is that hockey is a little more down to earth than other sports and the egos are a little bit less and mm-hmm. and um there is some i i felt very fortunate that um like you said that people were willing to make time for me again they didn't, they didn't know me most of the people who i interviewed didn't know me but they'd say, i'd say hey look you can you do an interview they'd say yeah we'll give you an hour or we'll give you a half hour or or this is the other story i really love to tell because um I was doing this. I was trying to get a hold of Ron Francis when he was the general manager of the and I went through the this- chat PR and they were they were great the Hurricanes organization's been great through this whole um situation and so uh I finally you know I finally get Ron Ronnie calls me and he goes hey look I'm really sorry that it took me so long to get back to you and I'm just like look man you don't need to apologize to me you like you you're the you're the, like the fourth leading scorer in NHL history and you're the general manager of a of an NHL team in season like you got a lot on your plate I, I'll whatever you got whatever time you have I'll take um but again you know I just think that you know, in-season, it was hard for a lot of guys to get a hold of and, and deservedly so. They're very single-focused. Single focused. And there's a lot of Whalers alumni in the high rankings in the NHL, which which made access a little bit easier than than try, if I was trying to go my own and, you know, lock, you know, try to log, um, track down these guys on social media or, or, you know, find email addresses or phone numbers or whatnot. So, um, but yeah, I, I would say that the story definitely lent itself to that because a lot of the people who lived it, again, love talking about their time in, in Hartford, but then also, you know, a lot of those people have ties to, to Carolina, like Kevin Denise was scored the final goal in Hartford and then scored the first goal in Carolina or Ron Francis was a, you know, was traded out of Hartford and then 10 years, about 10 years later, a little less actually uh, signed with Carolina played, played in Greensboro. And and so there were, there were, and um, I, so I would say, yes, I got most everybody I wanted to speak with. The only, there's only a handful of people I didn't get to speak with. I'd say, uh, you know, uh, Jim Rutherford, I really would have loved to talk to, to, um, just cause he's a fascinating guy and he had such a, a, uh, a great, uh, a huge role in, in building the team in Carolina and also was, was with the team in, in Hartford and, um, and Chris Pronger, I really, I had made actually made a time to speak with him and, and had him booked, but he had just never called me back. And, uh, and Emil Francis uh unfortunately uh you know who built the great teams in hartford some stanley cup contenders legitimate stanley cup contenders in hartford um i i got a number for him and and called him and and he was he's unfortunately suffering from some um dementia and was not able to to uh to speak for on the project so i guess i got a, i tried a little bit too late or got the number a little bit too late but um but yeah other than that like you said you know so many great people and so many, you know, people who made time for me and, uh, feel very fortunate, very grateful to them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Pat. Um, you mentioned earlier, uh, that you had seen, you know, high school kids and such wearing, um, Whalers gear. Um, yeah. why do you think there has been a resurgence of interest in the Whalers brand Whalers merchandise sells better uh, than 20 or 21 teams that are still in the yeah. NHL?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that, that number, Howard Baldwin, who was a founder of the, who was a co-founder of the whalers of WHA. Mm-hmm. He gave me that number uh, like 10 years ago and it's only gotten more popular. It's, 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 mm-hmm. um it's remarkable to me. And I think, so I think obviously the hurricanes have had a big, uh, you know, them, let you know, sort of co-op, I always say co-opting the people of mm-hmm. uh, Connecticut might say stealing or um, the, the, that brand, obviously that brand was, was hot before they, they bought, they, sort of leaned into wearing the Jersey and wearing the merchandise on the ice. So, um, but I think, you know, it's, I get asked this question a lot and I feel like it's, it's strange to me to see because the whalers were not anything special on the ice. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting that people are really pining for this story or pining for these memories or, or, uh, you know, but, but I think what makes – I would say that the Whalers' sort of enduring legacy is this kitsch, this kitschy mm-hmm. sort of, um, you know, Pucky the Whale, uh, Brass Bonanza, and their logo and jersey and color scheme. It was so unique to the NHL at the time. And it was – and in fact, it was sort of – it's interesting because the the Hurricanes have become this sort of – uh, anti NHL team, if you will. And that they, in that they are willing to, you know, sort of thumb their nose at the establishment and sort of carve their own path and sort of lean into some of the weird and quirky things that hockey have to offer with the storm surge. And with, um, you know, the, again, the Whalers logo on the ice and, and some of the bunch of jerks and, and, and some of the things that they've leaned into. And I think the Whalers in some way were similar because, um you know i I, peter good who designed the logo he was one person uh he's based in in connecticut he's a graphic designer and and he drew out and i think the cool thing about if you get the book if you look in the book there's there's the drawings about how that logo came together which i think is i was really excited when he was willing to share those with me because um obviously people love the logo but then also they want to see how it came together and and how it became what it ultimately became and i think so the logo was is very unique obviously with the h in the negative space and and with the use of green and blue, you know, if you look back at the NHL, there wasn't a lot of green in hockey back then. And, you know, there's a lot, there's still a lot of red and black and a lot of, you know, Navy and, and, and really fierce kind of tough colors. Um, but, you know, green and blue went well together. And, and the logo was, is very unique, to, you know, in terms of sports and ter- across sports. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of those things that, that endures is that it's such a unique logo from such a unique time that people love it. Even if the hockey establishment didn't love it. Like Jack Kelly was running the, the whalers when the, when the logo came out, he hated it. He hated the logo. He hated the color scheme. He didn't, wanted nothing to do with it. And even Brian Burke, when he took over in 1992, he did everything he could. He, he ditched brass bonanza. He made the logo Navy or made the colors. navy maybe navy in, in a darker green and ditched the green jerseys and, and added a, a gray accent to the, to the logo because you know they want it to be fiercer and tougher and I, you know I I love the I like the navy blue and the uh, too because that's what I grew up with mm-hmm. uh, watching on the ice and games and stuff like that but there's something special about this green jersey and even the white jersey with the with the blue tail and um, and the blue accents like you look it's just so unique to the history of hockey. And way so far ahead of its time where you look at even the, you know, the hurricane started with the negative space in their alternate Jersey. But um, I think that's what, what to me is what endures is this logo was spectacular and Peter good referred to it as a, a mind engaging logo, which is so it's just, it's very unique to hockey. And if you look back at the teams that existed, that no longer exist, they certainly don't have the same sort of, you know, elite, logo elite color scheme elite you know sort of again this sort of i refer to it as the enduring kitsch that makes that that keeps the whalers relevant and then and then it's key or weird it's a it's good you know it's not bad stuff it's not like we're we're hanging on to um these these sort of nostalgic elements just for the nostalgia it's just people look at that logo they say this is great or they look at this this jersey and they think it's great and i think you know there's there's also this sort of element, obviously people of my age, I'm in my mid third mid to late thirties, and people a little bit older than me too, that Hartford was a and it was a major sports city. And you know, you could turn on ESPN mm. or um, and see a game played in Hartford or see Hartford on the bottom line. And Hartford's just sort of this any town USA. Um, it's the capital of Connecticut and it doesn't have a lot of people. It has some industry, you know, wealthy industry and wealthy people, wealthy suburbs, but if Hartford could have a major professional team, you know, any city in, in America could have a major professional team. And, and we all sort of, you know, think back to, and I always think the nineties were very popular for hockey and, and Hartford had a very prominent place in that, um, in, in ways that other cities didn't or don't. So, um, I, I think all of that is really what keeps the brand relevant. And, um, and again, the hurricanes have, have only, uh, added to that by leaning into the, this, this, uh, logo in, in Jersey
0: absolutely thank you so much pat it's definitely a logo for design nerds um yeah yeah, listeners (laughs) we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor and then i will be right back with pat pickens the Bookin' Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter BOOKIN, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Pat Pickens, author... Of the Whalers, which is published by our friends at Lions Press. Pat, you brought up. Brass Bonanza, I want to ask you about that. Uh, Brass Bonanza was a fight song of sorts for the Whalers. It was a song that played when the team hit the ice and when they scored a goal. My wife, Claire, currently hates me a little bit because I took my five-year-old son to Whalers Night um, Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago as the Canes Mm -hmm. played the Devils, and Brass Bonanza has not left any of our heads since that night, Um, hers especially. It's a terrifically catchy tune. Uh, What's the story behind Brass Bonanza? and why don't more teams embrace a fight song of this nature
1: i'm glad you brought up whaler's night because i was in raleigh for whaler's night and i and part of it and i thought it was cool to see you know the the, hurricanes only scored twice but it was cool Mm -hmm. to see the fan reaction to the brass bonanza it really was like going into a a time machine and going back between the jersey and then also the, the song you know, watching it was almost like you know to see people clapping along to it and uh it was almost like going back in time or what I suspect going back in time to see what a game at at the civic Harvard civic center would have been like in, in the seventies or eighties. So I thought that was really special. And I think this, I think, you know, I'll answer the second question first is because again, you know, Brian Burke did away with brass bonanza when he took over the team in 1992. Mm -hmm. And he said that there were people who were there were players and and members of the organization that were embarrassed by, by having a fight song. So I think there is, um, and I don't know that to be true league wide, but I suspect that's why there's not more uh, sort of embrace of a, of a fight song or a specific song to a thing. You know, the Rangers have this sort of goal song that they play at MSG. They've been playing it for almost 30 years. So there's some, Mm -hmm. there, there there is still elements of that across the league. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, obviously goal songs are part of the, team identity to some degree, you know, you, they don't change very often. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I think people really, you know, they go to the game, they see the goal, they're excited to, to celebrate and they are excited to see the, the, the goal song. So um, I think, you know, brass bonanza is again, one of those kitschy elements that just made the whalers so unique because they were the fir- really the first of their kind to have that thing. I mean, it's interesting. The NFL, all in, the NFL is not as macho a sport as it is. Right. So like, mm-hmm. it's like the most, perceived as the most macho sport in, in North America and every NFL team has a fight song. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a unique, you know, so it's not like it's something that cannot exist for, you know, in terms of, it's not too much. Ma- the NHL is definitely not too macho to have all teams with fight songs. There's just sort of this perception of sort of low key and, and, you know, and, and that, you know, you don't promote yourself in that way. But I, again, sort of Hartford sort of wanted to be a little bit more uh, kitschy and that had that sort of became their identity. So the story behind Brass Bonanza is they were um, the whalers moved. Um, they started in WHA in Boston. They uh, Howard Baldwin got them a, a deal in in Hartford to go because he didn't th- he didn't believe that staying in Boston was a sustainable model. Competing with the Bruins, competing with the Celtics, mm-hmm. um, you know the circus was extremely popular. Used to uh, attract uh, fans and, and take dollars out of local people's pockets. So, um, so they they moved to Hartford and they stopped in Springfield in between. So they, they, when ultimately they moved to Hartford and I said, Connecticut is a great hockey state. I I believe that, but I think in 1975 when the team moved, there was not a lot of people who knew hockey, you know, it was sort of, it sort of developed into a, a great hockey state. Obviously it's close to Boston, close to New York. There are some hockey roots in Connecticut, but there were people who were going to the games, you know, 10,000 strong or so going to to Harper or New England Whalers games back then in WHA. And they didn't know what really, what they were watching, you know, it was sort of like, it, it, it's sort of like how you go to a game and, you know, the whistle blows and you're like, well, what happened there? Well, it's offsides, or the whistle blows. Oh, what happened there? Well, it was icing or, but they knew, obviously they know goals. And the, I, the, the whalers had this really sort of robust marketing arm in that it was just one guy, uh, George Ducharme, who, uh, who was, he, he sort of this, uh, le- becoming this legendary figure, certainly in whalers history, but also sort of, you know, hockey sports marketing history. I don't think his name gets brought up enough because he, uh, he, he, uh, the whalers were generally made fun of because they played in a, in the arena was right next to a shopping mall. So they, they always referred to the arena as the mall. And, but part of the, their, their placement next to the mall was they had a team store in the mall. And it was the first team store of its kind where people could, you know, sort of the, the we every team, you know, the hurricanes have the eye or, you know, other teams have, you know, team stores in the arena, they're, mm-hmm. they're everywhere, stadiums, arenas. But the whalers sort of invented that, that concept where they would sell logo merchandise. They would sell little, little kitschy, you know, whale toys for kids. And it just, and George, um, he found Brass Bonanza. And it wasn't, it was sort of this happenstance moment where he, 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 they, the Whalers had this, um, their first season, of WHA, they had, they, they made this LP, which for, if there's people younger than 50, I guess, listening, an LP is sort of like a, it was a record that, uh, that they put together. So they had highlights on the, on the record. And, you know, first season, high, so they'd have a goal on uh, the radio call a goal or the radio call a save or the team won the Avco Cup championship. And they had a, uh, they had a, a highlight from there on it and they needed music to bridge the highlights because the highlights would only take up a certain amount of time. And, and then they needed music to, to sort of intercede those highlights. And uh, it just so happened that uh, Brass Bonanza was, which was Evening Beat was the original name by, by uh, Jack Say was the original name of the, the, the music. And it just so happened that, that that was part of the bridge music. So George Desjardins gets um, this LP of the Whalers first season highlights and puts it on his coffee table and doesn't, he's not, he said, I'm not listening to this. I, I lived this. So, um, you know, months go by and, and he has his, his family over his grandkids over for a, uh, or so the story goes, he had his grandkids over for, for like Sunday at the grandparents' house and his grandkids go, Hey, Grandpa, what is this? They say, I don't know. It's whatever. It's this, it's this highlight thing from our first year in the WHA. So the grandkids are like, okay, let's they put it on the record player and starts playing. And, and George and brass bonanza comes on and it hits George like a like a thousand like a thousand bricks fall on top of him. That holy hell, this is this is our theme song. This has to be our theme song. Because you hear it and you say, This is catchy. The people can stand, they can clap along to it, it'll get them fired up for it. And so George goes to Howard Baldwin, who is the, you know, the pre- the owner and the president of the team and says, this needs to be our fight song. And Howard says, what are you talking about? And blasts him and, and, and it goes away. So um, George again continues to advocate for it and fights for the song. And, and ultimately they play it again, like you said, as um, the team takes the ice and, and after goals, and it really became this sort of, uh, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to me to hear how it matters to the people who, again, who lived the, the, that uh, life and, and, and with the Whalers because, um, you know, <laughs> Barry Melrose said that, uh, you know, he, he would hear brass bonanza and he knew he would have to fight that uh, mm-hmm. one of the Whalers tough guys that night or, you know, Brad Shaw, who who played for. Um, who is a defenseman for the Whalers, but also has since coached in the NHL. He's, he's been with the Blackhawks and the Columbus blue jackets. And, and he's been an assistant on those benches and probably is going to be the next Whalers alumni to be a head coach at when he, he at some point here. But mm-hmm. um, he told me that it was almost like Chelsea dagger is for the Chicago Blackhawks where um, it's, it's Chicago, you know, the song by the Fratellis has sort of become this anthem for the, the Blackhawks and their fans and they cheer and they jump around and they go crazy for it. And it drives the opposing teams crazy. And they like, when you, when they start scoring goals and it it gives the the home team so much sort of extra life and it just makes the other, the road teams mental or crazy or the blue jackets, Brad said, they shoot off a cannon after every Mm -hmm. goal. So, and he said, you know, it's like that, you know, you make these road players have to listen to this and have to endure this. And it just adds this sort of uh, this insult to injury type situation. And it's, it feeds momentum for the home team and it, and it, and it makes the other teams go lose their minds. So I think it's, um, and, and again, that there's this psychology to it is so unique because um, it's just a song, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. and again, it's, it's this catchy song that, you hear and then you start humming and it's just, it's in your head forever. So I, I, I think it's, it's really a fascinating element. And I know that Brass Bonanza was on the list of songs for the goal song in Carolina when they had that up for grabs a few years ago and the people down there didn't, didn't vote for it. So I'm to say that the people there honestly don't like it or that there's anything, you know, sort of, uh, you know, anti that song, but it's just, it's, it's interesting to me that, uh, that it, it endures. And and it's such a a part of the whalers story. It's just a song, you know, it's just something, you know, like you said, like sort of weird how that, how these things continue to live on all these years later.
0: Yeah. And I suspect if they voted again, uh, brass bonanza may win this time. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but yeah. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about, um, the tie between the whalers and the hurricanes with the time we have left. Um, and I do, uh, yeah, I want to ask you, um, you described the Hurricanes in the intro to your book as hockey-tonk fans, yeah. uh, which I thought was a very interesting and um, apt descriptor. I want to know what you mean by that. But sure. I also mentioned earlier um, that I've been a season ticket holder of the Hornets NBA franchise before and the Carolina Panthers NHL, or NFL franchise, yeah. and now the Hurricanes. And to me, um, there's nothing like a fired-up Hurricanes crowd. It's a different environment. Mm-hmm. Pat, do you think the Whalers? would have gotten over the hump and won the cup in Hartford, or did the team need to relocate and gain a fresh perspective and market?
1: I think, so I'll start with hockey talk, you know, just that watching that celebration from the 06 cup was so unique because, and there are so many elements that Carolina has have a, that this that the rally and the hurricanes have adopted as this sort of, like to make their identity their own Uh, long before they became, you know, like the bunch of jerks or the storm surger or or the whalers or whatnot, because, um, obviously there's the tradition people, you know, they they have to get to the playoffs to have these traditions because all these playoffs, these traditions are born out of the playoffs mm. and like the tailgating, which I, I really wanted to cover because that became such, like I was down there for whaler's night and people were tailgating at five o'clock. It was 25 degrees in Rowland. Like mm. it was, I was, I was dumbfounded by it, but the tailgating for big games is such a, or like the meeting, the team at the airport seems to be such a, a big thing after big playoff wins. And that celebration was so, was so unique because it's it's interesting because the the trend across the league is now to have downtown arenas and downtown mm. stadiums it doesn't really lend itself to tailgating doesn't lend itself to driving doesn't lend itself to parking mm. and there are um it's cool to to see those sort of elements at play where you know like i said stormy the pig riding a john deere zamboni or, or a tractor whatever it was and it mm. was just sort of this you know the honky-tonk and obviously hockey, to- hockey r- goes with that. And it just, that's what it reminded me of with this sort of carnival or, or country music festival type atmosphere where, where the Stanley cup is essentially the the guests of honor. So I think I remember hearing that. I, I feel like I heard that term when the NHL started moving South, whether mm-hmm. I don't know, I feel like it was in relation to Carolina, but it might've also, you know, obviously with Nashville and Dallas and, and some of the and other cities that, that sort of became, It just was something that I felt felt like was a, uh, was apt, like you said, but um, my. It's interesting that because I, I I keep my 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 belief is that if the team had stayed in Hartford, there could have been there certainly could have been more because because there were. Obviously, it was a it was a tough time to be a small market team in in those days because there was there were financial barriers that could not be overcome and that, and those barriers were only being addressed uh, at that point. You know, like you watch, you look at some of the teams that left, you know, Hartford obviously left and Quebec left for Colorado mm-hmm. and Winnipeg left for Phoenix and then expansion moved South. And there were other team movements in there um, and other, you know, sort of new markets cropped up and sort of migrations and what have you. But um, but- the state of Hartford, with stable ownership pete carmanos and jim rutherford and and tom thews who was sort of the financial backer of that group um and they had a new arena and they had new you know revenue streams which was really going to be the plan if they had stayed i think they could have been a cup contender certainly a cup contender and potentially even a a cup champion like like how it happened you know they were building something um that group you know peter carmanos was proud of the fact that he knew hockey and you know obviously built programs he built the he was, he's one of the, I'm really grateful for Peter Hermanos making the time to speak with me because he's such a, Mm. he doesn't talk about this story very much. Doesn't love talking about Hartford. Doesn't love talking about his ownership of the whalers. Um, and the people up there hate him. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it's sort of, it was great to to get his perspective and and for for him to be comfortable enough or willing enough to speak with me. Again, he doesn't know me. Um, but I think the, you know, there, there was the potential sure in Hartford, um, with a new arena with some new revenue streams with the, the program they were building because you know, again, I mentioned Brendan Shanahan and Shanahan, uh, was with the Whalers. Um, he got the, the Whalers traded Chris Pronger for Brendan Shanahan. Um, and they made Brendan Shanahan the captain for one. He was there for one season mm-hmm. and he could he could sense they were building something, but he couldn't, he didn't stay because there were no assurances that he could, that the team was still going to be there. So there was obviously, and he wanted to s- sort of lay down roots or so he, he said he wanted to lay down roots and build and build a home and get a, get established somewhere. He had been on, you know, the devils and the the blues, and then the, the hurricanes or the hurricanes, the whalers were his, uh, like his, his third stop. And he really wanted to lay down some some roots and settle somewhere and didn't want to do it with a team migrating and what have you. So, um, so I think, you know, they were building something they were They obviously built a program that worked. They went, you know, they went to Carolina and they won the division the second year. So there was some, obviously geography helps that. Cause they moved, they changed divisions and, and the Southeast division was nowhere near as tough as the, the Adams, but they became like, this was not a, a moment where, you know, ultimately that Southeast year might've been, you know, sort of fluky where they won the division their second year, but, but ultimately they became a bona fide program. And, and if they're, if they had done that in Hartford and they could have just as easily done that in Hartford as they did in Raleigh, I'd say in a new arena with new revenue streams. So, uh, I don't think they, they needed to relocate per se. Peter Carmanos would disagree because he in, in the triangle, obviously there's certainly less, uh, sporting options, uh, professional, especially professional sporting options for, for the fans down there to compete with. He was talking about competing with the Celtics and the New York giants and the New England Patriots and, and, um, and the Yankees and, and some of the established brands of of sports and then also being square between Boston and New York where you know the Rangers and the Bruins two original six teams sit um, but I think it's interesting to to me and I, I'm glad you brought this up tied to, from Carolina to Hartford because and this has only sort of hit me in the since the book came out mm-hmm. um this sort of this sort of you know obviously the people in Hartford aren't there are people in Hartford who aren't super ecstatic about the hurricanes wearing the Jersey. Mm. And I'm not sure that everyone in Raleigh is ecstatic about it either based on my own reaction. And, and I had that sense before the book came out. And then it's sort of been, uh, I've gotten some people on social media get out to me and say, you know, they don't love it. They're not, you know, it's not their history. They don't, their history is Carolina and it could be Greensboro. It could be, like you said, you've been a C- uh, ticket holder for years. Mm. Um, but I think there's this, there's enough of a, tr- I mean, i talked to enough people who are either from Connecticut that live there, or have come from the Northeast that live there, and enough people in Connecticut who are still up there, that it almost leads me to this sort of weird situation where, like, what makes a sports team? Like the Whalers are obviously still this living, breathing entity, mm-hmm. and you could tell by the people, you know, the fans wearing the jersey or the fans—I mean, fans every night at every arena will there there will be at least one with a Whalers logo on it usually. Um, or, and then this sort of whalers night thing where, where fans from Connecticut come down and they celebrate the history of the whalers and root for the hurricanes and how the hurricanes are still the whalers, but also, you know, but, but are still the hurricanes and are celebrate. It's just this sort of, and I think for, for some people in Connecticut, that's enough, you know, that this, that we're still talking about this team and Mm -hmm. that they still exist you know, whether it's been 25 years since they left. And that, again, that's enough people from Connecticut still are hurricanes fans, like legitimate uh, hurricanes fans that have mm-hmm. become, you know, that are inspired by this. And so it, it's, it's sort of this, it, it, it twists my mind up a little bit because, you know, the, the Wailers don't exist at all. You know, the civic center is not hosting Hartford Whalers games. Um, mm-hmm. And the, you know, it's not brass bonanza is not playing in NHL arena other than one night a year. And yet they do. And yet, you know, the, the hurricanes nod to them is, is such that it's enough for the people. And, and again, the people of Harvard just sort of don't want to seem to die. They just mm-hmm. sort of want us to keep talking about it and keep having them live on just so that they stay relevant. And just, so their city can stay on the map and stay on the, stay in the front line and, and, and that, people can remember this, not as a joke or not as this, but just as something that happened and something that the people up there are are proud of still.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And um, yeah, I've heard both sides from people from Connecticut and from Raleigh. And I, I love the whalers tie-ins just because I think it's the same franchise and you, you don't forget Mm -hmm. your past. Um, Well, finally, Pat, um, and I could talk to you about this book all day, but our time is limited and listeners Mm -hmm. If you have listened this far, I guarantee you will love this book. You can buy it from www.quillridgebooks.com with free shipping. And I do anticipate we are going to sell a ton of these throughout the hockey season and the future. Um, I'm so glad I stumbled upon this book. But, fat, but um, Pat, finally, do you think the NHL will ever return to Hartford?
1: I think I – think. I think that's a, that's a loaded question and obviously that's the question that everybody wants to know. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you mean a game in, in Hartford, yes, you know, mm-hmm. they will, I think there'll be a game and, you know, they may be regular season, maybe a preseason game at the civic center. Um, they're trying to make some major inroads to, to spruce up the arena. The, there's obviously a lot of arena competition now in the Northeast with, with uh, UBS arena on Long Island, which is, which the Islanders is new home and, and, and there's a uh, you know, Barclays Center in Brooklyn, which is not a hockey arena, but it's a, a, an arena. And Madison Square Garden is like the crown jewel of arenas in New York area. And then there's an arena in Newark and, and TD Garden. So, Hartford needs to keep up in terms of just to have dates for some things other than UConn. So mm. um, they're trying to they, – they've been talking about uh, renovating the Civic Center because it's the same building essentially as it was – um, 40 years ago after the roof collapsed, they, they made major renovations to it. And, um, like 44 years ago and, uh, and it reopened in 1980 when the NHL, when the Whalers were there. And so they so they want to spruce up the arena, make it better and make it bigger and, and more luxurious. And, but, um, to comp- again, just stay competitive with the mark, with the, the region, because there's a lot up there and Yukon will play its home games, there, hockey and basketball, but. Um, but they want concerts, they want marquee events. So so the arena is a big deal in terms of that. There is I had a belief, maybe like I mean, it's interesting that, to hear this sort of come up because 10 years ago Howard Baldwin said that Hartford could have been Winnipeg when Atlanta moved. Mm-hmm. So I and it's fascinating to hear that because he was trying to make that happen and it didn't work out and, and people didn't see his vision and and it, it fell apart. there was, you know, I, my, my gut says, will Hartford host a team? No, because there's other cities ahead of them, frankly, Um, you know, Kansas city, Houston, and they just expanded to 32 with Seattle. And that's a pretty round number. And and I don't think Hartford, you know, is sort of even at the table at this point, again, especially without a new arena, that's not going to stop people from trying to make it happen. There are people who are, working relentlessly to try and attract the NHL team in hard for bring back the Hartford Whalers. Um what I've said all along is that I don't I don't believe it will happen. Like I said, there's a lot of uh there are there are a lot of you know barriers in play. There's 16 Eastern Conference markets right now and uh again, 32 teams in the NHL. So it's it's and it's you know, even getting in consideration for some of these things just because I think um, you know, they're not. It's not talked about. You know, Quebec City. People talk about Quebec City. People, you know, there's an arena there, a, a legitimate arena there. There's a legitimate arena. I said in Houston, and there's you know a, a market there. It's like the fourth biggest market in the in the United States. And in Kansas City, there's a there's a, an arena there, and people are, are really sort of pining for it. The locals are really, you know, they've they've been rumored for for two decades now to have a team in Kansas City, and the, and the locals would love it, I think, to have a, a team in that city. So I think there are markets ahead of it. I would never say never because. Um, the NHL has proven it's willing to go home or to go go places it, it previously was. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went to Denver, they went to the Bay Area, they went to Atlanta twice and they Atlanta lost the team twice but um, and I, I you know I've been told that you know the NHL has scouted Hartford just just to sort of see what's going on up there. So I would say it's not I would say it's not impossible I just would say it's unlikely and I think honestly you know to some degree again I sort of alluded to this in the last question that um that for for whalers I mean whalers people in Hartford want to attract a team they want to keep their city they want to keep people move you know keep people young people moving into the city Hartford is there is an investment in Hartford in housing there has been an investment in Hartford in, in transit there's a you know there was a new train line they just Open. So they're trying to make some, they're trying to make Hartford a more attractive city for right. and a more, um, uh, livable city for younger people. Um, there has been a, 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 a sort of spike in urban areas around the country where, you know, people don't necessarily care to younger people don't care to live in the suburbs. They don't care to buy, you know, two acre plots of land and, and 52,000 square foot houses. Um, They're content condos or content in apartments in urban centers where they can walk. They don't need to drive everywhere. So all that Mm -hmm. lends itself to Hartford to some degree, but, um, but it's hard to see without major arena renovations and without someone who actually could see the market as potential, because I think we talk about Hartford and again, it's, it's, I love the little, it's a little lovely little city. Um, You know, it's got, but at the same time, it's it sort of shuts down at five o'clock on fridays and the weekends are you know it, it's a walkable city it's you know there's parks and there's uh green spaces and there's music there are museums and there are things to see but it's not like this uh, destination that other cities are in terms of tourism in terms and obviously you know having a team would help that but um i just i i don't i always and then i also wonder about how robust the support would be if they moved, if there was a team mm-hmm. that actually moved there. Cause I think the Whalers live in this place of this, this sort of corner, of what, you know, the corner of nostalgia and kitsch. And mm-hmm. like I said, the kitsch is cool and there's definitely nostalgia to, you know, people uh, uh, like us looking back at a bygone era where a team could be in Hartford. And I think, you know, it's, I, I wrote in the book that it's easy to buy a hat. It's easy to buy a shirt. It's easy to buy a, a sweatshirt or a Jersey or play breast bonanza. It's another thing to, to buy a 20 game partial season ticket package. It's another to, to, to go to Hartford on Tuesday night when they're playing the blue, the St. Louis blues and it's 18 degrees in the middle of January, or there's freezing rain or there's snow, or there's other elements at play. Um, and, and it just sort of, I just sort of wonder, I always wonder about what the support would look like and whether there would be the same support for, for the whalers that, because Connecticut is something of a front running state in some degree, you know, when UConn R- come, really took over that state basketball wise with women's and men's basketball, the whalers sort of got left behind. Mm-hmm. And um so I would just, that that's the only, I mean that, so I would, like you know, I think that I'd never say never, but I always say it's, it's I'd say it's unlikely that the Hartford would again for, for, one regular season game, maybe for one preseason game, certainly, but mm-hmm. for, a, uh, you know, for a franchise, I, I would, I would say it's unlikely.
0: Yeah. Um, I hear you. Well, I'll tell you, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a, Big snowstorm in Raleigh, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. the Rangers were in town that night, mm-hmm. and the arena was packed, and the South will shut down for one <laughs> snowflake falling out of the sky. So, if <laughs> Raleigh can pack an arena during a snowstorm, I would hope Connecticut could. And yes, I, I hope they get a team again as a Charlotte Hornets fan who was heartbroken when the Hornets moved to New Orleans, and then heartened when Charlotte was awarded the Bobcats franchise, and then thrilled when Michael Jordan bought the team yeah. and returned the Hornets' name and history to Charlotte. I think there is hope, and Whalers fans in Hartford deserve for it to happen, whether it's um, in the next five years or the next 50. Yeah. Yeah, listeners, I've been speaking with Pat Pickens, author of The Whalers, The Rise, Fall, and Enduring Mystique of New England's second greatest NHL franchise, which is published by our friends at Lines Press. Pat, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Jason. This was a blast. (laughs)
0: Once again, I would like to thank Pat Pickens for joining me. Copies of The Whalers can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Booking.